If you enjoy this episode of the Permaculture Podcast and would like more from the show, become a member of the podcast Patreon community today. Join now at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Your direct donations allow the podcast to thrive rather than subsist. Donate now using Venmo at Permaculture Podcast, online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, or you can send something in the mail. Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. If you want to learn more about anything discussed in today's interview, have a question about permaculture, or would like to suggest a guest or topic for a future episode, you can contact me by calling or sending a text to 717-827-6266, or reach me by email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Someone I've gotten to know over the years, Vinny, has an opportunity if you or anyone you know would be interested. He and his wife, Pamela, have a mostly wooded, off-grid homestead near Watkins Glen in the Finger Lakes region of New York. They're looking for some younger people to move to, love, and live on this land now, and to care for it long after Vinny and Pamela have passed on. They'd like someone who will continue to grow the garden, add to the existing agroforestry plantings and permaculture design, and build upon the existing projects, such as the aquaponics system and rocket mass heater. They're still working out how this arrangement will work in practice, as everyone brings their own unique background and particular ideas, skills, and interests with them to the project. If you'd like to learn more, send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, with the subject, New York Homestead. Be sure to include in your message the best way to contact you, where you're from, and why you're interested. I'll pass all that along to Vinny and Pamela, so they can follow up directly if it looks like you, they, and everything is a good fit. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. Today's episode is a collaboration with my friend, Karen Olson. She's currently hosting a series of conversations exploring what work could look, feel like, and give rise to if our efforts were dedicated to collective thriving and evolution. We're working together to share some of these conversations with you throughout the year. During these times with Karin and her guests, we'll hear them explore visions of what the world could look like if we dedicated more of the hours of our day towards work in service to life, and what it could mean to us, our communities, and the world if we earned our living through this work. As Karin provides a nice introduction to our guest, Carmen Leilani de Jesus, and their topic, The Wheel of Consent and Consent Training, we'll go ahead and get started. Enjoy this time with Karin and Carmen, and I'll join you again after. Welcome to the first of a conversation series on cultivating livelihoods in service to life. I'm really delighted to kick off this series with a conversation with Carmen Leilani de Jesus who is the Director of Communications at the School of Consent and a Consent and Boundaries Educator. And you can follow Carmen at Consent is a Practice. Is there anything else you want to say to introduce yourself, Carmen? I am a hyphenate type person, entrepreneur. I am professionally polyamorous, meaning that I work on a lot of projects at simultaneously and I do marketing consulting. I try to do it ethically and with integrity and with a heart for boundaries as well. And I am a survivor of many, many startups where I've worn a lot of different hats and I have translated that loosely all into a brand that I call Muse You Need Most. And my goal is to take the form of the Muse You Need Most in whatever your business needs. I'm a writer and a playwright and a newbie gardener and a mom. My pronouns are she, her. And I am currently on the ancestral territory of the Ohlone, which is in the East Bay area, specifically Richmond, California. 
right now. Thanks for having me, Karen. Thanks, Carmen. So great to have you. Um, and so folks, you can see that Carmen is an entrepreneur like many of us. And Carmen has a lot to share with us about entrepreneurship and how the practice around consent has really informed your practice. So excited to dive into that. We both, you know, in preparing for this, we're talking about how we're living in these times. And for lack of a better word, I'm calling them threshold times, right? We've got pandemic going on, like this whole new wave uh, that's really demoralizing for us. The IPCC report just came out with, of course, unsurprisingly, very dire warnings for us. Last year during pandemic, we also had the Black Lives Matter uprisings. We've had international disasters and now man-made disasters unfolding, right? So it's natural to be overwhelmed and burned out. Like just that is enough, but most of us still got to pay the bills. And so there's already all of these kind of meta issues going on. But one thing I like to daylight is that even the concept of work can be kind of grueling and grinding on us. And I like to daylight this with folks. So I'm going to invite you to just take a moment. Part of the wheel of consent practice is tuning into our bodies and the cues to our bodies. So I'd love to invite you to get present, however is true for you. Um, you know, some folks like to feel their feet on the ground. Some folks like to take some breaths. Stretch. Where is your body needing some movement or some stillness? And I'd love to ask you just to tune in. How does it feel right now for you to be present with us? And how do you get present with us if you've been running around and busy? And the beautiful wisdom in your body. And tied in with that, I would love you to think about the word work. And when you think of that word and what it means, maybe in larger society, how does that feel in your body? That's an inquiry I've been exploring. And we'll circle back to this because what Carmen and I are hoping is that by the time you leave, um, you'll have some new insights into what work means for you and what it can mean for you and with some of these insights applied to it. I'm just gonna be quiet for a moment and let you folks get present. So I wanna say that I met Carmen because I took the wheel of consent I think it was the like a pro training, the one where you get to learn how to facilitate with individuals and groups. And I took that training. Well, first of all, I want to say I started to see the outreach that was happening for the wheel of consent. And I was like that, I want that. I've been looking for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's how I, I actually got in contact with Carmen. Carmen wasn't in my training cohort. Carmen's been trained for a long time. But I took the Wheel of Consent training because I could see from the little bit that I had engaged with it online, that it was going to just illuminate for me so much about understanding how our economy works. And what do I mean by that? The wheel, so there is actually a wheel framework, a conceptual framework within the Wheel of Consent. And... One of the quadrants is the taking quadrant. And many folks think taking is bad, right? We don't want to take. And that can feel hard to take something. But when we think about it, like, it's beautiful if somebody creates space for me so I can take up space for someone to listen to me. Like that's a very healing, beautiful exchange. And we know that when people take up that space and like need to vent and whatever, and they do it without our permission, it feels kind of like a violation. But when they actually offer their presence and we, we actually ask them if they're willing to be present for us, that that can be a very beautiful healing that happens when both people are at choice about that. And the other person is giving me the gift of their presence. 
So taking can actually be this beautiful thing when there's consent, right? When there's an agreement around it. It's also very nourishing and healing and beautiful to take some healthy food onto my plate to nourish my body. But what I realized in thinking about how this fits in with our economy is when we harvest that food, do we ask permission? Some indigenous cultures surely do, but it's definitely not a practice that I grew up with. And so much of our kind of mainstream business is about capturing your share of the market, right? It's this whole kind of military industrial complex approach. And that is what in the wheel of consent is defined as outside of consent. So that if you don't have an agreement when you're taking so that the other person is free to choose whether or not they want to allow, then you're in this shadow place. And in the shadow place, we've got rape, war, right? Colonizing. And so, you know, one of the things I've been realizing is so much of what our economy is about is exploiting resources in service to empire, right? Not straight up taking. So I just wanted to share that because I think it's just so, so, so illuminating. And I wanted to give you a little background about why I got so excited about the Wheel of Consent. And it's also been personally super transformative to get in touch with my own desires and whatnot, but we'll talk about that later. So what we want to bridge now is like, how do we increase our abilities to take in ways where the aim is to take really good care of everyone in the dynamic? And that's whether it's personal or it's professional or whatnot. So, you know, desire isn't bad and actually tapping into our desire when it's done in right relationship is beautifully authentic and vulnerable and builds relationship. I've seen it firsthand through taking these trainings. So with that, I'm going to let Carmen kind of just meander through some threads that she wants to share with us today. Thank you, Karen. For those of you not familiar with the Wheel of Consent, it is a relational framework developed by Dr. Betty Martin. And she's at bettymartin.org. She has a ton of free videos. And we also have a school of consent where we teach our trainings. And the relational framework of the Wheel of Consent, the Wheel, you know, Karen talked a little bit about quadrants. So there's four quadrants in the wheel. Inside of the circle of the wheel are things that are within consent, where we have negotiated clear agreements about who is doing what and who it's for. So the framework of the wheel of consent is something that examines human behaviors so we can really clarify the motivational dynamic between giving and receiving. And we can get honest answers using this framework to the inquiries, who is it for when I'm doing this? And who is actually doing the action? And who is being done to? So this was developed over a decade ago with a focus on teaching consent and boundaries, first and foremost, to people who are working with touch-based professions. And one of the main points, you know, I mean, it's really hard to kind of in this time frame to teach an entire framework, but I just want to boil it down to what I feel like is useful to us here as entrepreneurs. So first to speak a little bit to the point that where you were going, Karen, about getting in right relationship. And for me, one of the things that hit me right in the heart when I started learning this model was the fact that Betty Martin was talking about the fact that since we were kids, since before we could speak, we've all been conditioned to go along with things that we didn't necessarily want to happen to us. That can be for the good, like it's time for bed, it's time to brush your teeth, all of those things. And it can go all the way to the really horrible things that can happen to us as children. And because of this conditioning, and because our society really doesn't even regard children as beings with rights or agency, 
or choice, we become conditioned to the fact that, okay, there's something that's going on outside of myself. It's happening to me. And of course, this is reinforced by institutionalized education and police state and capitalist culture. But there's something that's happening to me and how I feel about it is not as important as what is happening. So I guess I just have to go along with it. We start out as kids there and it's reinforced throughout our lives. Compliance and productivity become heralded as like values and virtues and things that are rewarded and speaking up isn't. Nobody teaches us anywhere where to feel for our boundaries or our limits, much less express them, right? So we learn to go along. We learn to go along with a whole bunch of things. For me, I, I learned this, and this was all taught in the context of my body, you know, when I first learned this. And then I started thinking about how this applied to, oh my, oh my gosh, this is why it's so easy for people to not vote for things that matter or to feel like they don't have a choice, right? And we're rarely taught how to access our limits, much less our wants or our desires or agency, which to me, that's all sovereignty. That's choice, right? Like I have a choice. I have a voice. I'm allowed to use it. I'm allowed to say no. I'm allowed to say yes. So we don't teach this. And what we reinforce instead is compliance, is productivity, is the idea that overworking it makes you more valuable. And, you know, you started talking about taking and taking my share is what matters rather than taking care of other people. So this all translates for me into not just my personal life, but also my professional life in where I do too much all the time. And I wait for somebody to notice that and reward it. And I feel terrible when it isn't and resentful when it isn't. And I don't know that I'm burnt out instead of noticing, hey, you know, maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe this isn't the right thing for me or the right use of my time. The only thing that informs me that I have gone over my, my boundary to give or to do is resentment and burnout, <laughs> which is like the worst indicator ever. <laughs> like, um, I'm over here twinkling like mad. <laughs> it's like, it's like um, so, you know, nobody, nobody teaches us that, which is why now, you know, I think it's, it's more and more in the zeitgeist that we are, there's all these courses about asking for what you want or saying no and why consent is such a big deal right now because we didn't realize all of this stuff was happening. It was completely, you know, and now we're seeing uprisings of all sorts because people are realizing, A, hey, I don't like this. My boundaries are crossed. I have a voice. If I have any agency as a human being, as a sovereign being born into this world, I feel like I need to use it because I don't want to go along with this anymore. You know, and I'm willing to see through the veil of, conspicuous consumption and all the things that we use to distract ourselves from the fact that I am trading my time, my precious time on this earth to do work oftentimes that I don't want to do, but I'm willing to do in exchange for survival, in exchange for money, because there's an obligation and that's why when you talk about work, work to me right now, when I think about work and, and the way I'm conditioned to think about it, it's the opposite of play. It's the opposite of ease and it's the opposite of rest. So for me, I started thinking about this in terms of entrepreneurship as somebody who is always working five jobs or projects to stay afloat. I'd love to talk about the desire spectrum so one of the things that we talk about in the Wheel of Consent trainings and the Wheel of Consent practice is that there is a spectrum. On one side of the spectrum, 
is a hell no. And another side of the spectrum is a hell yes. And in between, you know, on the hell no side, there are things from all the way to, you know, from where the hell no is, is where I'm being forced to do something. I'm being coerced. And then if you move towards the middle of the spectrum, there are things that you are willing to do. And then, you know, you move from willingness all, you know, to as we go to the direction of the hell yes, there are things that we on, on that end of the spectrum are things that we want to do. So when I look at want and willing to, and one of the questions that we also ask is who is it for when we do things, right? So the things that are on the want to end of the spectrum are usually things that I've located a desire or a passion inside myself. And I said, I want to do that. So my energy is intrinsically generated because it's my desire. I want to do it, right? Nobody's making me. I want to. That to me, when I met Karin and started learning about the regenerative paradigm, I'm like, regenerative goes on that end of the spectrum, right? And on the willing to, there are degrees of willingness, right? Where it's sort of like, and it's usually I will do this if, I will do this because, I will do this conditionally because I don't really want to, you know, the desire does not come from me. It comes from either an external obligation or some like, I need to survive. I'm doing this only for money or I'm doing this, but with a limit, it's like, yes, I'll take you to the airport this time, but don't ask me every time or yeah, I can help you move. But when we start learning about want and willing and really taking a look at how many things do we do? And I'll tell you, this is from my story. After all of this work in last year, 2020, I was terrified of not having work. So I took whatever work was thrown at me, which meant sometimes I was working like five or six jobs. I was willing to, I mean, I was staying at home anyway. I, you know, I couldn't really go anywhere. So I worked my butt off. And by the beginning of this year, I was shredded, you know, because first of all, I'm not sure how familiar your, your audience is, Karin, with like the nervous system. <laughs> but I think that's a, that's another big thing that we that I think more and more folks are talking about the fact that we're all kind of in fight not kind of we are all in fight or flight right now hyper vigilant at all times to an invisible predator danger right so when we're in fight or flight all the time, what does that mean for us? It means that we're hypervigilant all the time. That means that there's always like a share of energy devoted to keeping you safe and always scanning for danger and doing risk calculations. That's a job in and of itself, okay? <laughs> it takes a lot of time and energy, especially when you're moving around in the world. So, and then of course there's, the climate crisis. There are all of these humanitarian crises, and there's all of these natural disasters and man-made disasters. There's so much social unrest and injustice. There's a million things to be scared of right now that our reptilian minds are like, I don't know that that's not happening directly to me. So I'm going to react to all of it. Okay. Now I'm freaking burnt out, completely burnt out, right? Because now it makes sense that we all just want to crawl into our beds and watch Netflix or not, or just withdraw, you know? And so even the things that we want to do can become compromised, right? And that all of our time and energy and resources goes to like, okay, these are the things that I'm willing to do for survival because survival is number one. So I realized, I took a hard look at how many things that I was doing in the course of my days and weeks that were on my want to, I want to do these side of the spectrum, and how many things were on the willing to, and especially how many things I was doing out of 
unclear agreements and obligations and expectations that I felt like I had to keep doing. Nobody asked me for it, but I'm going to keep doing it. Creating so much, so much work and exhaustion for myself. And, you know, I was in the position where I had worked so much last year that I, you know, I, I had enough resources that I could, sh you know, I could share, I could donate to things, I could, you know, support people who weren't working and that felt good. But I was really out of juice. So I started looking at, okay, let's look at all these things that I'm just willing to do. And how can I start backing away from those and eliminating the things that I don't really want? Moving as much of my time, energy, and focus to what are things that I want to do? Can I at least have a little balance, if not move the bulk of my resources and energy and time to the want to? And for entrepreneurs, I, that kind of clicked for me. And in our conversations, Karin, I was thinking, you got to be intrepid to be an entrepreneur because entrepreneurs are coming from the want to place, right? If you are creating something, it's not because somebody's telling you to do that. So you need to keep revving that engine of your own want and your own desire to keep your business going. And if you keep doing all of these little willing to things that maybe some of them, yes, we need to do to survive. We need cash. We need like whatever. If, if we're just getting started with our entrepreneurial endeavors. So yeah, day jobs, whatever projects, things that you do for money, la la la. Okay. Can we back away from some of those, especially the ones that are not using our talents and skills to their highest potential? and that are draining us and especially those which are draining us not just because of the kind of labor because maybe you're in toxic work environments because boundaries weren't set because expectations and agreements were unclear because there's so much being not said so i started backing away i don't know how how familiar you anyone is here with the simpsons but there's this one little video gif of homer simpson that some people use sometimes where there's a hedge and homer is slowly backing into the hedge until it consumes him and, he's, and that's what i started doing with all of you know different work things where i was like yeah you know what this over here is just draining me and i'm not receiving apart from money and sometimes even the money wasn't enough even when the money was good I started realizing and coming to recognize that there are so many alternative forms of value. And when value exchange, when I think about the value exchange, I'm like my time, my labor for money. And the money is not even enough because it took more of me than it paid me back. Then I started thinking, I'm going to start valuing my time more. And when I think about the value exchange, yeah, I'm not getting enough value if it's just money that I'm getting back. You know, especially if I'm in in an environment where I I feel like I'm just getting squeezed and ground down. So I started backing away from those things too and thinking about, okay, how do I move my time, my resources, my energy over to the want to side of things so that I can start because Another thing, of course, that we teach in the Wheel of Consent is how to access pleasure or desire as a resource for resilience. Well, and let me pause there because as yeah, before sure. we go there, one thing I wanted to parse out for folks that are listening, I'm hearing two things in what you were saying. Like there's on the willing to side, one of the things we wake ourselves up to is just that whole thing of like, what am I want to? What am I willing to? Okay, there's all this stuff on the willing to side that I don't really want to do. And so just becoming awake to that, I think is huge, right? Because I think a lot of us, especially folks who identify as women are trained to take on all the less sexy work that actually makes our families and society run, right? All the tending, caring work 
that we may or may not want to be doing, right? But it often defaults to us. So becoming awake is one thing, but then setting the boundaries, right? Will you talk to us a little bit more? Like, I think you told me about this example where someone was like, I'll pay you to do this. But you got so clear on this value exchange that you had a really clear boundary. I think that would be really useful for folks to kind of parse out before we go over to the to like the desire part, because I think that's a big challenge for folks, especially when we're we're passionate and we want to make something happen. So we're willing to do anything to make it happen. Right. The example to which Karen is referring is one of my former projects which was a very, very lucrative project. And it was a project that was lucrative specifically because it was the kind of work where nobody else wanted to do it. Nobody want like, you know, things that need to get done, nose stepping up, it was that. So someone, a former client, had a pile, months worth of that kind of work like operations, accounting, invoicing type stuff, forensic accounting, just billing, all of that stuff, months worth of it. And, you know, it was a person who doesn't have a lot of boundaries themselves, but, you know, I want to say a very loving, warm-hearted person who was never really taught boundaries, and that translated into work and 3 a.m., 50 texts sort of things and just 24 seven expectation of being available and stuff like that. You know, I left that project very specifically because I'm like, I don't care how much this pays. I wake up in the morning and I dread it. I dread it because it's not done. I mean, the mess that was made is one that is so convoluted that it's going to take me more time to do it than anyway. So long story short, this person, like, you know, half a year after I left, I, you contacted me fairly recently and said, I will give you $10,000 just in one go. If you will, and the literal, the literal words were, if you will clean up this mess for me that I made and a, who doesn't need $10,000 in one go. So I had a battle with my own boundaries and limits and ethics and all of this stuff. And, you know, I, I started thinking to myself, you know, in these past six months, not working at that job, what have I had the time for in my life? How did I regain more of my sanity and my ease and my desire to wake up in the morning and be in the garden or spend time with my family or just take care of myself in a time where I'm really just trying to, you know, I'm out of resilience and I need to get back to it with all of, and prioritize my mental health because I was really not doing well. And so, you know, I'm like, you'd be a fool to not take them like, on one shoulder. And the other one on the other shoulder was the other little voice saying like, do you remember what it's like to work with that person? And how plugging back into that matrix will take all of that energy that you have stored up and restored over all this time and just like, and so I said, you know, I, and I consulted all of my mentors and my coaches. What should I do? I mean, I don't really, like, yes, I could always use this money. Do I need it to survive right this very moment? No. Do I believe that somehow I can get my needs met other ways without having to compromise myself in this way? Yes. So I came to this idea. I'm like, okay, this is how I'm going to come back to this person. I told them. I'm willing to do this, willing to, and then I set my boundary. My boundaries were, you know, you can only communicate with me by email. I only have this much time per week to fit this in. You need to gather all this information for me so I don't have to go forensic hunting for everything. And I am not available for any calls, right? Or to discuss with you because this is, this is someone who really, in terms of boundaries, took the personal into the professional and created a lot of the, yeah, I'm like, I'm not 
not willing to be your therapist as well, you know, sort of thing. And so I said, I'm willing to with these terms. Never heard from them. And I didn't feel a loss of that money. And I feel privileged and grateful that I can say that. And I know that not everyone can. I acknowledge that completely. But for me, in this moment in time, it was a peer, it was a move that it really cemented like, hey, I'm mature. <laughs> I've, I've grown as a human being and as a person who, and I've grown in respect for my own time and my own energy. And I did that because of this process that I went through of like, I don't really want to do that. It was really like, in terms of wanting to do it, hard no, hard no. But in terms of willing to, I'm like, okay, every 10, you know, like, I mean, she said that number specifically because she wanted to get my attention. She didn't lowball me for a reason because she knew she was taking basically a giant dump on my desk and saying, hey, can you go through this for me <laughs> and figure it out? Like, yeah, you know what? That's why I didn't go ahead and go to law school because I wasn't interested in that kind of work. Yeah, and I remember you said when we were talking earlier, something about was my work meaningful or did I just shovel someone else's poop all day, right? Yeah. And I loved that because I think that that, you know, I think that that whole willing to thing can often devolve to that, you know, where we're just taking care of someone else's toxic mess. I want to go back to this whole take part of the quadrant, because what I want to emphasize for folks was she was asking to take your energy, right? And what you really did was you felt first there was a hard no, you noticed that, you honored that, and you thought about what would need to be in place in terms of boundaries Anything else you want to say about that? Because I just want to emphasize that that is what brought this into a potential consent, right? And that your boundary actually allowed it, you know, like you didn't have to go outside and compromise yourself and she didn't follow up. So that was, that's actually a good thing, right? Because she wouldn't want to do anything against your will. So I want to share with folks who aren't familiar with the wheel. So there are four quadrants of the wheel. There's the take quadrant which is opposite a quadrant called allow. And there is a serve quadrant, which is opposite a quadrant called accept. In the take quadrant, we are doing something for our own benefit. In the allow quadrant, we are giving something to someone for their benefit and allowing it to happen. In the serve quadrant, we are doing something but it's for someone else's benefit. And in the accept quadrant, there's something that we want, that we want someone else to give to us, right? Yes, she was trying to take, but the transaction of the value exchange and the terms that we created could create a clear agreement equaling consent that would have allowed us to move forward. This is where, you know, I learned my lesson. She took and I allowed her access to me more than I would have if I had really thought about it. So I started feeling like I'm not giving a gift to her of allowing access. She's just taking it. And when we talk about, you're talking about the shadow is where I did not enforce my own boundaries. So I was outside of consent as much as she was. I take responsibility for that too. If she takes from me and I allow it, and all I have is resentment and pointing the finger at her as a perpetrator, that is not me taking responsibility with the agency that I have for the situation, which was noticing where I feel a boundary or a limit and communicating that. I just want to highlight what Carmen said is that when you're in the allow quadrant, which is what Carmen was in, the shadow of allow 
is being a doormat, for example. So I love that it's actually locates agency in any party of the interaction, right? Not just the person who's trying to take, but also the person who's allowing. And I want to emphasize for folks as entrepreneurs, what I see a business model does, right? A business model is how we create, deliver, and harvest back value for people whom we serve. That's what a business model is. And that actually creates the boundaries. You can work with me in this way for this much money and it's upfront and it creates a, like a safe container for you. That's why a business model is so, so, so important to figure out. Both internally within your organization and externally with other people who are your actual customers. Exactly. So we've talked about the like willing to part. Let's go over now. You were starting to talk about desire and want to. And I really want to give folks a chance to hear from you. Like, how do we actually tap into our desire and what's really juicy around the work that we want to do? Because I can see like, that can sound like a meta question that's hard to answer. And let's get some insights about how they can do that for themselves. Well, as I said, one of the things that clicked for me in our conversations, Karen, was noticing that, well, entrepreneurs, if they're not being told what to do, because they're not being told what to do, because they're business owners, they incept their companies and their businesses from the want to side. It's something that they want to do, right? And remembering why that is, holding the vision of that want, locating it like, why do I even want this, right? And we really have to get clear on that because mm -hmm. there's sometimes there are things that we think that we want because we're supposed to want them or because other people want them. And then we have to make ourselves try to want it. So using this inquiry that is one of the foundational inquiries of the wheel of consent, who is it for that you're doing this? Who is it for? And one beautiful thing about the folks that are magnetized to the regenerative paradigm is that who is it for can start with you, obviously, as your unique highest expression or unique highest contribution. I want to be I want to embody, I want to offer the gifts that are my unique highest contributions that I know that when I do it, I feel in flow. When I do it, I feel like I'm being, you know, I'm utilizing the things about myself and about what I know about my lived experience, about my training, about my interest and as a contribution to not just like my own self-development or my highest expression of myself, but also, you know, with, in your terms, Cara, the idea of I'm doing this in service to the beloved community of the whole. How do we take time to get in touch with that? Spend some time there. Who is it for that I'm doing this? It's almost like liberating yourself from the idea of obligation and reframing it as I want to do this because it feels good to give this gift to the world. It satisfies me. It fulfills me in the doing of it. After I've done it, after I've had this call with this person or I've helped this person, I get a good, healthy feeling and that enlivens me. And that I can go to bed at the end of the day knowing I did something good in this world. So that's one way of getting there. But that requires some real examination of that want. Is it really yours? Or is it something that somebody told you you had to do? Or told you, you're so good at this, you should totally do this, right? And I've fallen into my trap, that trap my entire life. You know, I was, won't go into my own entire, like, young trauma that shaped me, but, 
long story short, I had a hard time accessing my own motivation because I was always just told what to do. Or you're good at that, so keep doing it. Or that's going to make money, so keep doing that thing. And yeah, okay, I want to do that because yeah, yeah, I want to make money. Yeah, I want to I want to be a good girl. You know, I don't want to waste my life doing a thing. But let's take that apart a little bit. And can we get back to the origin of what we want? Do we even know? There's one of the practices, I don't know if you, you did this one, Karen, is like the desire rant. We did a desire interview. I'd love to hear what the okay, rant well, is. Well, the desire, desire interview is the same. It's the same. It's just basically how can we take this time and just all the things that I want in five minutes, just only think of that, go, and then just generate, like, I want this. And it's not just like, I want world peace and I want everybody to have food. It's more like, I want to feel the sun on my skin, on the beach and the cool breeze and a hug. And I want to feel my feet in the soil. And I want, I want, I want, and let it bloom from there. But so much of the time I, I think to myself, and of course I'm steeped in it because this is, this is our bread and butter, right? For consent educators too, is like, Hey, do you know how to ask for what you want? Here's how. And the fact that there's so many folks taking these courses is kind of mind blowing to me because wow, we really don't know because it's drummed out of us. In the Like Approach training, one of the things that we do is let's make a list of all the reasons why we don't ask for what we want or we don't say what we want. And the list is always exhaustive and the fact that the desire rant or the desire interview can be hard for people, you know, it's kind of weird, right? It's kind of like, why would that be weird? Why would that be awkward? Why would that be hard? And it's because where along the line did we stop learning how to access want? And I resonate with that because when we did that exercise, I'm and this is like COVID, this was like March. This is like February. This COVID winter, I think it's February, yeah. COVID winter, I hadn't been around anybody for months already. And I was like, yeah, there ain't going to be no desires <laughs> that are going to be there. Like, I just like, I'm just kind of getting through. And when we did that interview, I was like, wait, there's a lot of desire in here. And that feels exciting. But it required creating the space in which it was normalized. And I think that's the key. I think that there's so much that we do around work. So in the Pathfinders course in the Regenerpreneurs Network, we work through that kind of Japanese Ikigai framework about what does the world need, which could be something that you really are excited about and you want to do, or it could drag you over into willing to, right? What are you good at? Which again, could be something you really want to do or could drag you over into willing to. What do you love, right? And that's where people really get the opportunity to create that space and normalize that space around what lights you up. And since taking the Wheel of Consent Facilitator training, one of the things I added in was what work actually like, and going through different things, like feels great in your body feels great as a contribution to your community or to the people whom you serve. You know, like different ways to really access what feels great, not just kind of okay, but like what is like delicious for you. And that's informed by the wheel of consent and realizing in my body, in my experience, how it's not normalized to really claim the work that we love. And I think that that's, I think that's just such a key insight for us. I agree. And I also know from seeing it, from knowing it myself, that it, it can be really poignant to access those things. Because when you do, you realize how bereft your life may have been of living on the want to side. That makes me sad, you know? And when we generate that list of like all the reasons why we don't ask for what we want, you know, it's like, shame, fear that I'm not going to get it, fear that I don't deserve it, all of these things. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. 
It really is. It's heartbreaking. And, and as a culture, you know, I'm not really sure how we got here. <laughs> so disconnected from ourselves, so disconnected from our own natural impulses of desire, or how we got them drummed out of us, and how we don't access that as a resource. Well, and one point I just want to make on my Instagram, if people want to go to it, I have a three-part installment BS that we accept as normal about work in the United States. And one thing I want to say is we have normalized jobs that do not allow you to support your family, but extract huge amounts of energy. So like one factoid, this is before COVID. Almost half of U.S. workers between the ages of 18 and 64, so almost half, are employed in low-wage jobs that pay median annual wages of $18,000. That is an economy, and I don't want to say broken, because it's working the way it's supposed to. That is an economy that has figured out how to extract maximum energy for minimum output. And, you know, of course, they don't have access to health insurance or anything like that. But since 1990s, 63% of jobs created are low quality. So, you know, I think that when we think about our livelihoods, we think about it on the personal level. So many people are leaving this kind of shit job to start their own business because we realize like that isn't how work should look, right? It shouldn't look like extraction. I mean, ideally, if, you know, we look to, I don't want to romanticize indigenous cultures because that's important to me to not presume that, oh, if we just go backwards, it's all fine. Cause that's not true either. Right. right. Um, not completely, but the idea at least, and I'll speak for myself. My background is from the Philippines. I was born in the States, but my folks are from the Philippines and I've been learning more and more about decolonization through understanding how deeply colonized my homeland is. Work in indigenous society, for example, is not necessarily about working to extract anything. It's about working to take care of each other. And that what we do as labor, whether that's tilling the fields or cooking the food or whatever, are all expressions of care, of taking care of each other, of being in community, not just with the other humans, but the animals and all of the plants and, you know, nourishing the soil and thinking about the future of the soil. These sorts of things. Regenerative thinking, which like, whoa, that's so trendy now, or it's getting trendy, and like the and like lots of indigenous, you know, folks are just like, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> but the idea of work and labor as something that is in exchange for X is something that is, I think, a modern construct and part of the exploitative and extractive labor practices that create all of this disharmony and survival of the fittestness and this lack of care. And, you know, from what I've been exposed to from your work, Karen, so much of what the regenerative paradigm is, is going back to that idea of everything is beloved. And the work we can do, we can frame in terms of how is the work that I'm doing or how can the work that I do be part of this overall community of caring for all beings on this beautiful planet that we share? And, you know, whether that's bringing healing or growing food or, yeah, or just moving energy and people around and organizing things, but bringing back when we talk about right relationships and right livelihood. That's what it means to me, you know, is that how is the work that I'm doing reflecting care for others? And also myself, obviously. Yeah, and that's really why I, I became interested in hosting this conversation, because when I think about if our dominant 
experience of work in the dominant economy feels like some version of at worst extraction, at best exchange of my life energy for dollars. And, you know, I can do some good work. That seems like a pretty bankrupt paradigm, right? And like what, asking this question, what would the livelihoods that actually are in service to life look like? And I've reached out to actually someone, hopefully in the future, we'll have a conversation around what is colonizer mentality? How does that show up in our mainstream paradigms of work? And what does this person who is an indigenous person, what can they share about what they learned from their culture? about other ways of having a a mental model about work and its contribution, like what you just shared with us, Carmen. Thank you for that. I also want to mention that there's some folks who have really informed my learning about this, in addition to Dr. Betty Martin and Carmen and uh, the folks at the Wheel of Consent. Adrienne Marie Brown, who is the author of Emergent Strategy, also talks about pleasure activism. That's been really helpful. Trisha Hersey from the NAP ministry, who's really talking about how white supremacy and capitalism has made us think that we're useful when we're productive and that rest is resistance. We love following them. And Sonia Renee Taylor's work around the body is not an apology and radical self-love. I think all of those have been resources that have helped me really evolve my very working class Protestant ethic, work ethic kind of workaholism and interrogate that. So those are some other resources. Carmen, do you have any last things that you want to bring in to wrap things up? I would just like, I guess, to sum everything up, I use the question, who is it for every day? I use the idea of this desire spectrum of want to and willing to almost every day and I use them as discernment tools so that for how I choose to use and offer and exchange my energy and invest my energy when I'm on the willing to end that's not bad I want to make sure that that's it's more that if you're on the willing to end of things Are you willing to do things with an awareness and a responsibility to your boundaries and your limits? And are your agreements there clear? And the reason why that's important is that that helps us to realize that we are at choice. So if I'm willing to, I need to know that that's my choice. I'm choosing to do this. These are my terms for doing this. So that anything that I do on the willing to side doesn't create a resentment energy suck. And if it does, that's our (laughs) cue, like in consent is renegotiable at any point in the time. I think that's what a lot of us don't do is we, you know, something starts to creep in scope and then we're like, okay, Right. But we actually need to renegotiate. That's a cue to renegotiate. All of it, you know, all of the work that we do is kind of bringing it back to ourselves and our self-awareness around exercising our agency and sovereignty so that even if we're doing something that we don't really want to do, we're not going along. It's a choice. And that was Carmen Leilani de Jesus. Find Carmen and her work at museyouneedmost.me and on Instagram at Consent is a Practice. You can find our host for this episode, my friend, colleague, and mentor, Karen Olson, at regenerpreneurs.com. She also has additional resources from the session with Carmen at regenerpreneurs.com slash DeJesus. As mentioned in the introduction to this episode, Karn and I are collaborating to share more of the conversations from this series with you in the future on the Permaculture Podcast. In the meantime, if you'd like to see what's coming up from Karn and her guests, including joining in on an upcoming live session, you'll find a link to all of that and more in the show notes. Karn's next session, with the folks from the Meaningful Work Project, is on Wednesday, October 6th at 8 p.m. Eastern. In hearing what Karn was working on, 
I wanted to share these conversations with you in the Permaculture Podcast because the specific interviews and themes of the overall series speak to the growing dissonance I've experienced myself and heard from listeners between trying to make our way through the world while staying true to our values and the ethics of permaculture, while trading one's work energy for dollars that are earned through practices that seem extractive, meaningless, or in the words and title of the book by the late David Graeber, like a bullshit job. And as if that weren't enough, we're navigating all this while feeling, in our bones and in our souls, the impacts of growing climate disruption, increasing wealth inequality, continual social injustice, ongoing pandemic chaos, and the myriad of other social and environmental ills all around us. To help us with this, Karin is speaking with numerous guests across a variety of disciplines to explore topics that move our individual mindset and shift our cultural paradigms. Some of those include right livelihoods, collective liberation, regenerative entrepreneurship, social innovation, decolonizing our concepts of work, and the importance of embracing pleasure and grief. Listened to individually or taken together, it is Karn and I's desire to revitalize you and your work as we, all of us, stand together and cross the thresholds of our time. Until we meet again, spend your days ranting about your needs and wants, meditating on whether you are saying yes willingly or out of a sense of obligation, and considering what work feels like in your body while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>